Welcome to CNS Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Tracy Batchelor to see what's new and exciting in the field. And to begin, I asked him about an ASCO poster of which he was co-author, reporting a surprising case of a patient with glioblastoma treated with an agent we've heard a lot about in lung cancer, crizotinib. We have started to prospectively analyze the tissue from our glioblastoma patients who are operated on at our hospital so that we are developing a molecular profile in real time up front with these patients. And it turns out that crizotinib, which of course has shown very encouraging results in patients with ALK-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. So it turns out that crizotinib also is a potent inhibitor of CMET. And the CMET gene is amplified in approximately 5% of glioblastoma. So it's a small percentage, but we did identify one of our patients who had a CMET amplification. And after she had failed standard therapy, including timozolomide and radiation, followed by bevacizumab, we enrolled her on a trial of crizotinib monotherapy. And frankly, to our surprise, she had a significant reduction in size of the tumor, about a 40% reduction in the size of the tumor to crizotinib therapy alone, which was maintained for about five months before the tumor progressed. So although it is one case, it is a striking result in this CMED amplified glioblastoma when treated with crizotinib, which is a CMED inhibitor. So we are following up on that result and developing a trial that will enroll glioblastoma patients who have CMED amplification onto crizotinib. This tissue concept, what are some of the other markers that you're looking at? So in glioblastoma, the main marker that we look at still is MGMT. So get that in real time from their operation. Is it methylated or is it unmethylated? But I mean, does that have predictive value or just prognostic? For sure it has prognostic value. Predictive value is still a bit of an open question, but it definitely has prognostic value. It is something that we factor into discussions with patients about prognosis. Other markers that we are acquiring now in our glioblastoma patients, mainly to consider them for clinical trials at this point would be, in addition to CMET, EGFR amplification status, and in a subset of those even, the EGFR-V3 mutation, which is a constitutively active form of EGFR, which appears to be turned on in roughly 20 to 30 percent of glioblastoma patients. So we've developed some trials of newer generation EGFR kinase inhibitors that have some better CNS pharmacology and are irreversible inhibitors as opposed to reversible inhibitors. And those trials will only enroll patients who have EGFR amplification or V3 mutation. Some of the other markers that we're looking at, which at this point remain experimental and really to identify patients for trials, would be things like platelet-derived growth factor receptor amplification, mutations in PI3 kinase or loss in the P10 gene, so either activating mutations in PI3 kinase or loss of P10 would indicate that that pathway is upregulated. And of course, now there are a number of pan-PI3 kinase inhibitors in the clinic, and there are 
isoform specific PI3 kinase inhibitors that will be coming into the clinic very soon. So the whole idea here, again, in the clinical trials world is beginning to select out these populations to test targeted agents on them. It's interesting. I have your recent former colleague, Tom Lynch, and a bunch of other lung investigators coming in to our offices this week. And we will be talking about irreversible EGFR TKIs. I know the one I've heard about is a fatinib, but I hadn't heard about differential CNS effects. Mm-hmm. There is one agent that's experimental at this point that we have in a clinical trial that appears to have very good CNS penetration. It's an irreversible compound. At this point, it has a number. It's 299804. But I mean, don't all small molecules like that get in there very well or not? No, not all of them do. Some of them, for example, imatinib has limited CNS penetration. So it really is compound dependent. And some of them are, of course, substrates for P-glycoprotein and get pumped out by drug efflux pumps. So all these things come into consideration when you're applying some of these small molecule inhibitors to the CNS. And again, sort of trying to see this, really empathize with oncologists trying to figure all this stuff out going across all these different tumors. But when I hear, when you talk about the V3 EGFR mutation, is that in any way analogous to the EGFR mutations that are seen in non-small cell? It's not the same, but they are analogous in the sense that these are mutations that result in constitutive activation of the receptor and continuous signaling. So it's felt to be an important one in GBM, although initial trials of erlotinib, gefitinib, have largely been disappointing. But again, none of these were really selected for EGFR V3 mutation or EGFR amplification even. The molecular results were done post hoc in these trials. And I think the next big step for us in neuro-oncology is to select these patients up front. So another poster that you were involved with that kind of caught my attention, again, another drug I kind of struggle to try to figure out is a flibercept. Obviously, we've heard a lot about bevacizumab and GBM, but this was a phase one study combining a flibercept, the VEGF trap, with temozolomide. Right. So a flibercept works similarly to bevacizumab in the sense that both of them work by ligand sequestration, by binding up the circulating VEGF ligands. In fact, a flibercept has a very high affinity for the VEGF ligand. It's certainly an earlier stage of development than bevacizumab and glioblastoma. We have seen that it seems to be reasonably tolerated when combined with Temozolomide. You do see some of these bevacizumab-like responses in some of these patients, but I think the jury is still very much out on whether we're going to see the same kind of impact of a flibercept on progression-free survival and response as we see with bevacizumab. The mechanism of action is similar in that it's binding the circulating ligand, and some of the criticism has been, well, these drugs are large protein molecules. They're not going to get into the brain that well. Well, if they're just binding the ligand, that might not be so important. So these agents like bevacizumab, flibercept, could still be active and not be good CNS-penetrating drugs. So I want to ask you about your cases. Why don't we talk about your first patient? Okay, this is a 58-year-old male, was an active marathoner and runner who began to develop some visual symptoms out of the right side of his visual field while running. And this occurred a few times over a few weeks. And then he had an episode where he had this visual obscuration, 
and it persisted, and he became dizzy and a little disoriented. So at that point, he decided to present to an emergency ward locally, and he did so, and was found to have a right hemianopia when he was examined, specifically a right inferior quadrant defect, not a complete hemianopia. In any event, this was a focal neurological finding. He ended up having a CT and a subsequent MRI scan and was found to have a heterogeneously enhancing necrotic-looking mass in the left occipital lobe of his brain. It certainly had characteristics that were suggestive of glioblastoma. There was no other medical history that would suggest an abscess or demyelinating disease or anything like that. He was transferred to our hospital, and he underwent a craniotomy. And the neurosurgeon performed a gross total resection of the mass. The enhancing part of the mass was removed. And the pathology was glioblastoma. I mentioned earlier that we are testing the tissue for some markers, and in this case he did have MGMT tested, and he had MGMT methylation of this glioblastoma which means that the enzyme has been inactivated or low levels are active. And so he subsequently went on to receive therapy. His initial therapy was standard temozolomide in combination with external beam focal fractionated radiation over six weeks. He then had a break of around five weeks, and then he presented to my office in very good physical condition, feeling very well. He had an MRI the same morning that I was seeing him on the afternoon. And while I was in the office chatting with him, I received a page from our radiologist saying that this patient looks like he has progressive tumor, that there's much more enhancement and mass effect. So I looked at his MRI, and sure enough, whereas before there had been a nice, clean resection cavity, there was now necrotic-looking, enhancing tissue with more swelling around it and mass effect. On the other hand, this individual looked absolutely terrific. Aside from his persistent but stable visual field defect, he was doing very well, back to running, back to full employment. And so it just didn't compute so much. So he ended up having a PET scan, an FDG brain PET. And this scan was hypometabolic over the region of enhancement more suggestive of treatment-related effects than tumor. However, it was so striking on the MRI that we didn't quite believe the PET scan, so we proceeded to obtain a series of needle biopsies from the enhancing tissue, and the pathology results were that this was very bland tissue, necrotic material with very rare tumor cells, so this was consistent with what we call pseudoprogression, our treatment effect. And in fact, this case was several years ago before this was widely recognized. And I think today, in his situation, we probably would not proceed with a PET scan or a biopsy, knowing that he's at risk of this, and one could even say at high risk, because he also has MGMT methylation. There was a paper out uh, a year and a half, two years ago, that demonstrated that in 23 patients with MGMT methylated glioblastoma, 21 of them developed some form of pseudoprogression. And this usually occurs within three months of completion of radiation, and it's usually evident on the first MRI. So this was pseudoprogression, and our response to it was simply to continue treatment with the standard approach, which was monthly temozolomide. 
over a period of approximately nine months with scans every other month, the enhancement slowly dissipated and the mass effect was reduced. And at the end of his one year of temozolomide, he was left with essentially that resection cavity and no swelling or enhancement around it. So an example of MGMT methylation, glioblastoma, and pseudoprogression. How do you conceptualize the pathophysiology of pseudoprogression, and why don't we see it in other parts of the body, or do we see it? Well, you can see it in some other parts of the body. It does appear, even though there have been no direct comparative studies, it does appear that the risk seems to be higher in brain, not clear why. It is most likely a vascular injury, that these are vessels within the tumor, adjacent to the tumor, that are injured by this effect of radiation and chemotherapy, and subsequently become more leaky, permeable, and that is the basis for the contrast enhancement, it's the basis for the swelling. There also appears to be, in some of these patients that have come to biopsy, an inflammatory component to these lesions with an influx of inflammatory cells, probably local release of cytokines, which exacerbate permeability and leakage of contrast and swelling. And it appears to be a higher risk in MGMT-methylated patients. And one of the ideas is that the radiation and temozolomide are synergistic. And in fact, in preclinical models, they are synergistic when given together in terms of killing tumor cells, but also resulting in this reaction in the tumor, if you will. So what happened with the patient? So he finished his 12 monthly cycles of temozolomide. The standard approach is to give at least six cycles of temozolomide after radiation. In his case, we treated him for one year with monthly temozolomide, continued to do very well clinically, and approximately one and a half, somewhere between one and a half and two years of his original presentation, he developed a seizure. And it turns out I had seen him in the office three weeks before with an MRI that looked perfect, just a resection cavity, nothing else going on. Three weeks later, he has a seizure, ends up back in our hospital, has a new MRI, and to my surprise, he had a new enhancing mass in the right frontal lobe. So he originally presented with a left occipital lobe glioblastoma, and now it looks like he's got a recurrence in his right frontal lobe, a remote recurrence of glioblastoma. The classical teaching has been that glioblastoma recurs locally within one to two centimeters of the original site of the lesion. But what we're recognizing now in the era of chemoradiation and in the era of understanding MGMT status is that a higher percentage of patients in one study, up to 40% of patients who have MGMT methylated glioblastoma develop remote recurrences outside of the original site of the tumor. This patient underwent a right frontal craniotomy and had resection. Sure enough, it turned out to be glioblastoma, and it was MGMT methylated at that point. Because he had not received radiation to the right frontal lobe, he received a full course of radiation to the right frontal lobe and then was treated with bevacizumab after that. But an example of someone who has done well, because he's two years out, almost two years out from his original presentation, but has this curious remote recurrence of his tumor. He went on to receive the bevacizumab for about six months, but unfortunately progressed and ended up 
dying about 28 months from his original presentation. So an example in an MGMT-methylated glioblastoma of a relatively good outcome, a median survival of 28 months, but also a recurrence outside of the local site, and unfortunately, ultimately, the tumor stopped responding and he died from this disease. Just out of curiosity, did he have a sort of pseudo-progression-type picture after the radiation of that one? He did not, and of course went right on to bevacizumab after finishing radiation. And bevacizumab, if anything, causes the opposite because it reduces permeability of blood vessels. So we didn't see that same reaction in this treatment of this second site, although it could have been masked by the bevacizumab. The other thing that's interesting about pseudoprogression is there was another study done out of Italy which suggested that those patients who develop pseudoprogression have a better prognosis than those who do not develop pseudoprogression. And I guess if you conceptualize this as some sort of dramatic treatment effect, that kind of makes intuitive sense. The rates of pseudoprogression in the literature vary from 20% up to 45% in one study. And I mentioned if in the MGMT methylated subset of patients, the rates appear to be much higher than that. Now, it is usually, again, within three months of finishing radiation. And it's also usually most noticeable in that very first scan after finishing the temozolomide and radiation, the six-week block of combined therapy. So we tend to ignore that first scan if there is even change on it, more contrast enhancement and swelling within the radiation field. If there's something outside of the radiation field, and clearly that's more suspicious for tumor. But as long as it's inside the radiation ports and it's within three months, we would continue standard treatment at that point and just follow it a little bit more closely. The other implication of pseudoprogression is it has changed the way that we design our clinical trials in neuro-oncology in that we do not really allow someone who has quote-unquote progression within three months of completion of radiation. The only way that that type of patient can get into a clinical trial is if they have biopsy proof that that is tumor progression and not pseudoprogression. I've been telling people that I've done my own study of pseudoprogression in terms of if you ask people, a neuro-oncologist, to present three or four cases as I do for these programs, you can almost be sure the first one's going to be pseudoprogression. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like a p-value of whatever. But, I mean, you know, I, I can understand why. I mean, it really is important to know about. Yeah. So last thing about this case is going back to the decision to start Bev in this patient. Now, at the point you started it, he wasn't really having progressive disease. He had gotten surgery and was having radiation therapy. What about that issue of starting then as opposed to waiting? Well, I guess it's how you look at this case. I mean, I think that one way to look at it is it is recurrent disease. So this is disease that survived prior chemotherapy, temozolomide, and maybe this was disease that was from the original site that survived both chemotherapy and radiation. But it certainly would not be considered standard of care to start bevacizumab in the newly diagnosed glioblastoma setting at this point. There are ongoing randomized trials that will answer this question, whether bevacizumab is of value in the newly diagnosed setting. 
and we should have those answers within the next two years or so. So bevacizumab should be reserved for recurrent disease that with prior standard radiation and temozolomide having already been used. This is a little bit of an unusual situation, but one that we see sometimes. And we made the decision that, you know, received prior temozolomide, we didn't want to use that again. So we went to the next thing that's approved for recurrent disease, which was bevacizumab. How strongly do you feel about not using bevacizumab up front off study? I'm sure there must be some educated patients who come into you asking about that. Well, I just don't think we know. And there's an outside chance, this is why you do the studies, there's an outside chance that those patients may not do as well as those who get standard of care. Now, why might that be the case? Well, what we do know about bevacizumab is that it is a very potent inhibitor of permeability. And that reducing permeability can cut both ways in newly diagnosed glioblastoma. One could argue, and there's some experimental evidence to suggest this, that if you reduce permeability, you might reduce the ability of chemotherapy to penetrate the tumor. So that is at least a theoretical concern. That's why we do the studies, and I would say I would not use it up front until we answer that question. The other school of thought is that bevacizumab actually might enhance the ability of your radiation and your chemotherapy to work, that it might reduce the epoxy in these tumors, which could make your radiation and chemotherapy more effective. And contrary to the earlier data I cited, there is even some data to suggest that maybe it improves delivery throughout the tumor. So there are contradictory studies out there in terms of what bevacizumab are agents like bevacizumab, what impact they have on delivery of agents into the tumor. So it's an open question and should be answered in a clinical trial. Anything new in terms of bevacizumab and GBM, either clinically or translationally? I think one of the big areas of investigation right now is there appear to be two populations of patients, glioblastoma patients, who receive bevacizumab. One of the populations, probably the majority, has a beneficial effect in terms at least of reduction of contrast enhancement, reduction of mass effect. And then there's another group of patients, perhaps a minority of patients, that have no impact on their permeability, their swelling, their mass effect. And the problem is right now, we can't pick those two populations apart. We have no biomarker that indicates who's going to be sensitive to it, who's going to not be sensitive to it. So a lot of effort is being put into looking at both tumor tissue-based markers, blood markers, imaging markers, to see if we can pick out the subset of patients who are most benefited by bevacizumab versus those who will not. But as of today, there are not any answers to that. So let's talk about your second patient. So this was a 88-year-old female living independently, but with a significant number of comorbid conditions, diabetes, hypertension, on a fair number of medications, who developed some personality change. This was noted by her family. She was brought to her primary care physician, who didn't really find anything when he examined her, but the family was concerned to the point that he ordered an MRI. She had the MRI as an outpatient, and the family was called to say that there was an abnormality, and she came back in. And the abnormality was an enhancing mass in the corpus callosum, which connects left and right parts of the brain. In this case, it was the front part of the corpus callosum, which is known as the genu of the corpus callosum, so kind of impacting the bifrontal lobes. 
which probably accounts for her kind of gradual personality change. Contrast-enhancing, necrotic-looking mass. It was not resectable. The patient underwent a stereotactic biopsy. In this case, she came in the day of the biopsy with her family, had the biopsy, slept overnight in the hospital, and went home the next day. The pathology came back as glioblastoma. Now, this was a biopsy specimen, so we did not have enough tissue to do additional analyses around MGMT and other things. So we're faced with an 88-year-old female, previously independent, but with some significant comorbid conditions and uh, polypharmacy, who now has an unresectable glioblastoma. And the question is, what's the best course of action for her? So this is a topic of active investigation. There was a study a few years ago from France asking the question whether we should be putting elderly patients who have a very limited life expectancy with glioblastoma through a full course of radiation over six weeks and all the side effects that one might experience with radiation or radiation and chemotherapy. So the investigators in France conducted a randomized trial that randomized elderly patients to best supportive care, which was pain medication, steroids, anticonvulsants, versus a course of radiation and, of course, supportive care. And in this trial, the elderly patients who received radiation had a much improved survival, number one, than those who did not. And this confirms multiple studies from the 1970s and 1980s that radiation prolonged survival in glioblastoma. But importantly, they also noted that there was no difference in the cognitive function or quality of life in these patients who received a course of radiation. So in my mind, confirming that radiation is still a value in this population, of course, all of these decisions are individualized in terms of the condition of the patient, the desires of the patient, their family. But this patient wanted additional therapy. We provided her with a course of radiation. She developed tumor progression about five months later and ended up dying about six and a half months after diagnosis. But her quality of life was largely maintained until the time of progression, and she was even able to return to her home for a period of that time after the radiation. So these are tough cases, and again, these are often individualized decisions that an oncologist makes with a patient and their family, but there still appears to be some value of radiation in this patient population. What about temozolomide? In this particular case, this was several years ago, we did not use temozolomide, but it is, as these drugs go, it's a very well-tolerated drug, and I certainly use it in patients routinely who are in their 70s and sometimes in their 80s and have not noted any big differences, significant differences in toxicity. So one could also say that temozolomide with radiation would be a very reasonable way to go in a patient like this. There have been some studies recently that are in elderly patients with glioblastoma looking at chemotherapy alone approaches or radiation alone or radiation in combination, and they're coming out with some conflicting results. So we'll have to wait and see how those studies pan out. But I think that the standard radiation and temozolomide approach should be on the table, at least for discussion with these patients. How about your next patient? So our next patient is a 32-year-old male with a history of lupus who developed an acute right facial seizure at work, presented to the emergency room, was found to have an enhancing left frontal mass, and had the mass resected, 
partially resected, and it was a glioblastoma. The testing for MGMT was not successful in his case, so he did not know MGMT status. He was treated with standard post-surgical radiation and timozolomide in combination, followed by standard timozolomide monthly, and about nine months after his presentation, developed progressive enhancement locally and was determined to have progressive disease. At that point, the timozolomide was stopped. The patient was started on bevacizumab monotherapy. In this particular case, he had a very robust radiographic response to bevacizumab. Almost all of the contrast-enhancing region of the tumor resolved. However, during this period of two, three, four months of treatment with bevacizumab, despite radiographic improvement, the patient continued to experience clinical deterioration. Specifically, he was developing more and more language difficulty. Concurrent with this, on his MR imaging, we noted that he was developing new areas of restricted diffusion. Diffusion-weighted imaging is part of a standard MRI package. It's something that is obtained on a standard MRI in brain tumors. And in this particular case, those sequences show that he was developing new areas of restricted diffusion, which we weren't sure how to interpret. So in light of the clinical deterioration and these radiographic changes, which stood in comparison to his very good reduction in contrast enhancement, we elected to biopsy one of these regions of restricted diffusion. And the biopsy, stereotactic biopsy, determined that the patient had progressive glioblastoma. So this is an example of a patient who has a radiographic response to bevacizumab, but it is not correlated with the underlying tumor response. This is probably more a reflection of the reduction in permeability and the reduction in contrast leakage that you see with bevacizumab. And some have even termed this a pseudo-response to bevacizumab. So this case was a lesson for us in that we now pay more attention to diffusion-weighted imaging in these regions of restricted diffusion. It has certainly not been established that all of these areas of restricted diffusion are tumor. But in this particular case, we observed that. And we've also seen in another study of another agent that blocks VEGF that these areas of restricted diffusion appear to go up in time in most patients. And one interpretation of that is that that is progression of non-enhancing tumor while someone is receiving an anti-VEGF drug. Interesting. How about your last patient? So this is a gentleman who presented while on a study abroad program. He was 25 years old in graduate school, previously healthy, on no medications, and had a sudden generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Was taken to an emergency room, was found to have a non-enhancing left frontal lobe mass, and had a partial resection of that mass, and it was a low-grade astrocytoma, a WHO grade 2 out of 4 astrocytoma. Because management of low-grade astrocytomas is not clearly established in terms of the best management option for these patients, he was considered for radiation or observation. And after discussion with his physicians, he decided that he would opt for observation and not early radiation. And he did very well for nine years without any neurological symptoms, without any change on his scan finished school, fully employed as a teacher, 
and then began to develop some language difficulties, again, nine years after the original presentation. And at that time, his MRI showed new contrast enhancement in the left frontal tumor. Remember, before, the tumor was not contrast enhancing. He had a biopsy done at that time, and he unfortunately was found to have glioblastoma. So this is an example of so-called secondary glioblastoma. This is a glioblastoma that evolves from a lower-grade astrocytoma that has been present for some period of time. This represents only about 5% of all glioblastomas because 95% of the time these tumors appear to arise de novo, not from an underlying lower-grade tumor. So in this case, a secondary glioblastoma is treated essentially the same way. He was treated with temozolomide and radiation and did very well for around one year and then developed disease progression. So now we're out at about 10 years since his original presentation with a low-grade tumor. At his time of progression, we treated him with bevacizumab. And two years later, he continues to do very well and continues to receive bevacizumab. So in this case, his recurrent tumor has responded very well to bevacizumab. And I don't think that this represents an example of pseudo-response. I think this is an example where bevacizumab has really benefited a patient. It's fascinating. Two years. Any hypertension, nosebleeds? He did not have any hypertension or nosebleeds, but he did have a mild problem with his craniotomy wound, which fortunately was resolved with just a local procedure. He did not have to have a flap or anything done. But certainly wound dehiscence is a concern in patients who've undergone craniotomy, radiation, and then received bevacizumab. And it's certainly something that one has to monitor for. That's interesting. So how long after the craniotomy did he start the Bev? He started the Bevacizumab roughly three to four weeks after the craniotomy. Generally, we like to wait at least three weeks. Most people would say four weeks before starting it, but this person had residual tumor and whatnot, and we felt like he needed to get started on therapy. And the dehiscence, is this essentially in the skin? This was at the margins of the incision. So where he had actual limited breakdown was where the two skin margins had been approximated. Hmm. So the last thing I want to ask you about is I know one of your other interests is in lymphoma of the CNS, and I note you've had a couple of recent papers. One uh, journal I read all the time, German Medical Science, just kidding, (laughs) isolated, actually in German and as well as English, isolated CNS relapse of systemic lymphoma, and then another paper, I guess, is about to be published or being published now in neurology, looking at rituximab monotherapy in patients with recurrent primary CNS lymphoma. Maybe you can comment on these two papers, and just in general, what's going on in the field that you think oncologists should know about? Sure. So let me start by some background. So primary CNS lymphomas are extranodal, diffuse, large B-cell lymphomas for the most part. These occur in the CNS, which could be brain, could be spinal fluid, could be the eye, or combinations thereof. There's no disease in the extraneural compartments. There are approximately 2,000 new cases a year in the U.S. of primary CNS lymphoma. Now, in contrast to that is what I will call secondary CNS lymphoma, which occurs much more commonly than primary CNS lymphoma. And secondary CNS lymphoma is a patient with a known systemic lymphoma who develops CNS dissemination of disease. Most of the time, that's into the leptomeninges, the CSF. 
but about a third to a quarter of the time it can be in the brain parenchyma as well. Obviously, these are approached a bit differently because usually in the setting of secondary CNS lymphoma, there's both active systemic and CNS disease, so you have to kind of address both of those, whereas in primary CNS lymphoma, one can really focus on the CNS disease. In terms of primary CNS lymphoma, there have been some recent developments. We now have two published randomized trials that have come out of Europe, one of them demonstrating that ARIS-C in combination with methotrexate appears to be better than methotrexate alone in terms of radiographic responses. The methotrexate clearly is the most active drug in primary CNS lymphoma, but it's now been shown in a randomized setting that combination therapy is better than monotherapy with methotrexate. The other trial is also from Europe, published in the Lancet Oncology, and this was a look at the use of whole brain radiation because whole brain radiation therapy has been considered part of the standard of care for primary CNS lymphoma. And in this trial, patients who achieved a complete response either received chemotherapy and observation or they received whole brain radiation to consolidate that response. And in the intent-to-treat analysis of this trial, there was a slight advantage of whole brain radiation when it came to progression-free survival, but not to overall survival. And one of the downsides of whole brain radiation is that of neurotoxicity. And most patients, especially those over the age of 60, are going to develop some element of this. And so many of us in the field have been looking at strategies to either reduce the dose of whole brain radiation or even to defer it and use chemotherapy alone. So those are two big randomized trials that have come out in the last few years. And the other final word I'll say about primary CNS lymphoma is that from the American Society of Hematology meeting in 2010, the results of a CALGB multicenter trial were presented. These were newly diagnosed primary CNS lymphoma patients who received a combination of methotrexate, temozolomide, and rituximab, and chemotherapy alone, followed then by consolidation with ARIS-C and etoposide. And this was some of the best multicenter results we've seen, and the regimen was very well tolerated. Over 60% had complete responses to methotrexate, temozolomide, and rituximab. And the progression-free survival at two years is in excess of 50%, which is quite good for primary CNS lymphoma. So I would say a very promising regimen that will be further studied. In terms of secondary nervous system lymphoma, the outlook is not quite so good. The median survival after disease disseminates to either the brain parenchyma or the CSF is quite limited in most series, certainly under one year and many under six months. If the disease appears to be mainly confined to the CNS, so-called isolated secondary CNS lymphoma, we approach it like primary CNS lymphoma, and that is using methotrexate-based chemotherapy with or without whole brain radiation therapy. What do we know about rituximab in terms of blood-brain barrier and actually being effective in CNS tumors? So rituximab being a you know, large antibody molecule should not have much penetration across a normal blood-brain barrier at all. But remember that these tumors at the time of presentation are diffusely enhancing. So there's diffuse disruption of the blood-brain barrier. And so in that setting, rituximab actually might have some benefit. And in fact, we showed in a small pilot trial sponsored by the National Cancer Institute that in patients at the time of relapse of their primary CNS lymphoma, over one-third of them had objective radiographic responses to rituximab alone. So clearly the drug does have some activity 
in that setting of newly diagnosed disease or newly relapsed disease. And that's been the basis then to move it up front and combine it now with methotrexate and temozolomide. Rituximab has also been used in some very limited studies intrathecally, that is to say injected into the CSF in patients who have lymphomatous meningitis. There was a study published in blood within the last few years showing this was largely safe when done in humans, and now there's an ongoing combination of intrathecal rituximab and methotrexate in patients who have lymphomatous meningitis. So hopefully some of those results will be coming out soon.